0: Hello and welcome to Sun City Stories. Today's episode, we are having a conversation with Mayor D. Margo. Uh, Found out a lot of stuff about him. We we deep dive into his past, kind of learn what made him the person that he is today. And of course, we kind of talk about the campaign, things coming up, all that stuff, the way that the city of El Paso has handled things from the COVID pandemic to... The August 3rd shooting, all this stuff happening under his term as El Paso's mayor. I have reached out to other mayoral candidates about getting on the show. I don't want this to come off as, you know, we're only doing something biased or any of that nature. We're not trying to do that here. What we're trying to do is highlight the stories of these individuals in the city of El Paso. So if there's anybody out there that you know that you think has an interesting story, send them over my way. And we can highlight what it is that they're doing here in the city of El Paso. Uh, You can always get at me at Mr. 33 on Twitter and Instagram or just the tip underscore 915 at gmail.com would be a great place to send an email as well trying to highlight the people here in the city of El Paso. It doesn't matter if you're the mayor or if you're just some random person like I am. We are trying to highlight all of the stories here in the Sun City. That is why these are Sun City Stories. But without any further ado, here is my conversation that I have with El Paso's mayor, the city mayor right now, D. Margo. Welcome back to Sun City Stories, everybody. Mike Tipton here, joined by El Paso's mayor, Mayor D. Margo. Uh, I did a deep dive, and I found out a bunch of things about you. Like I said, I, I, I would have thought you were from El Paso because you've basically been here forever. But you aren't from El Paso. Where is it that you originally uh, grew up at? Well,
1: it's, a, it's a kind of a different story, Mike. My- My uh, great-great-grandfather came from France through New Orleans up to Rio Grande and in 1850 settled in Rio Grande City, Texas. He married a woman from Mexico. His name was Roberto Margo and back then it was spelled M-A-R-G-O-T. And uh, he married a woman from from Mexico and they had a son, my great-grandfather, named Ruperto and Ruperto is my, Rupert is my middle name. And they had 10 children, and number seven was my grandfather, Elias. His wife, Rupert's Ruperto's wife, was also from Mexico. And then my grandfather, number seven of 10, Elias, was uh, didn't speak English till he was 18, and then he went to the University of Texas at Galveston Medical School, graduated in 1919. But for whatever reason, he left... Uh, Rio Grand City and, and moved to Oklahoma City. I think it was the beginning of the oil rush or whatever, and uh, was an orthopedic surgeon there for his entire life. And my father was born there, I was born there, but my father was kind of a vagabond, and uh, uh, his older brother also became an orthopedic surgeon but my dad dropped out of medical school and, and uh, took different jobs, and moved around, and we were transferred. We moved basically every three years when I was growing up. And uh, he uh, was he, some, sometimes even lost his job. He lost his uh, uh, changes occurred. We were not uh, we were not on the high side of the family, so to speak. But I ended up going to uh, to uh, high school in Huntsville, Alabama, and I was fortunate enough to to play on a very very good high school football team. My junior year, we played for the state championship of four a ball, and my senior year, we were undefeated. I never played before less than 12,000 fans. And we signed my senior year, we signed seven scholarships off a 45-man team. That's really how good we were. And I just got caught up in that and was uh, able to obtain a football scholarship to Vanderbilt University. And while I was at Vanderbilt, I met a young lady my senior year who was a sophomore. And I met her on a blind date. And I was kind of uh, smitten with her, so to speak. Uh, although she made me chase her for three years, she was from El Paso and her name was a Dare Wake, or is a Dare Wakefield. And on August the
0: 21st of this year, we were married for 44 years. You spoke about Huntsville, Alabama, and then going to Vanderbilt. What was it about Vanderbilt that kind of made you go that way? Well, frankly, I wanted to be a doctor. The majority of the guys that I
1: played with went to Alabama, Auburn, our quarterback went to Georgia Tech. Uh, they all they, they we spread out all over and we, uh, but I, uh, the, the successful side of my family was my grandfather and and my uncle who were both both orthopedic surgeons and I thought, I, that's what I wanted to do. So I, not only did Vanderbilt recruit me pretty heavily, uh, of course I was back recruited when they didn't have caps on on uh, number of signees. And was recruited by many many uh, universities throughout the southeast and and elsewhere, even Penn State and the, and uh, Annapolis and West Point talked to me. But uh, at the time, that was kind of the height of Vietnam, and that wasn't that wasn't the most appealing at the time. But uh, uh, although I think I would have really enjoyed it, especially West Point. But uh, in any event. Uh, I went there thinking I wanted to become a physician uh, I spent a year and a half in pre-med med chemistry and was defeated and uh, after a couple of semesters of academic probation it was pretty relevant uh, pretty evident that uh, that uh, pre-med was not my uh, forte and and so I switched to history and economics thinking I was going to go to to law school Vanderbilt did not does not have a Business undergraduate degree. They they have a a graduate school of management, but you don't. You it's arts and science and engineering and nursing and and uh, uh, so I couldn't do any. I did history and economics, which I thoroughly enjoyed. Uh, But when when I graduated, the law schools I was accepted to were outside of Nashville. I was still chasing this young lady and. I didn't have any money anyway. I mean, if I hadn't had a football scholarship, I, I don't know that I would have been able to attend college. I certainly wouldn't have been able to attend Vanderbilt, and as I say, my father lost his job the first time uh, uh, right before my freshman year in, in college. And so, you know, I'm just, I was fortunate.
0: Whenever you played football, was there like a, one of those shining moments of glory that you had out on the football field? Well, I don't know
1: if I'd if I would say glory, um, I did receive some accolades. I played both ways. and That was back when I played both ways. So I played defensive tackle and I played offensive tackle. Uh, the closest I came to a Walter Mitty experience was my, I was one of the faster players on our team. I ran a 4-7-40. And I was like 6'1", 225, ran a 4 forty, And they wanted me to do fullback sweeps. So in spring practice before my senior year, I got to do that some, but we didn't have enough linemen, so I couldn't do it. But I always I wanted to do that. But I ended up being named all district and things like that, and that's how you know I got my scholarship. So I just was fortunate enough to be on a very good high school team with with tremendous coaching.
0: Is there any chance that we can get you on the Utah football team now? <laughs>
1: although after being injured I do have one year of eligibility left but uh, <laughs>
0: there's no way and I'm a supporter of UTEP football uh, I'm just saying like the, the chance of glory is there yes we, we should go after I'm that. optimistic
1: I'm always <laughs> optimistic and you know when I was playing at Vanderbilt we led the nation in moral victories anyway so uh, and my senior year actually it seemed like every away game my senior year we they had a coaching change and Steve Sloan who was supposed to be Bear Bryant's heir apparent, had been quarterback there, and Bill Parcells, of New York Giant fame, and elsewhere, were our, were, was the assistant head coach. And they, uh, they had both been at Florida State and were a crew there, and, they, and that was their, Sloan's first head coaching job was at, was at Vanderbilt, and interesting, after the 75 season, Vanderbilt had tied, they actually went to a bowl game against the Peach Bowl. I, I was gone, that was a year after I left, and they played uh, in the Peach Bowl. They played Texas Tech to a 0-0 tie or 10-10 tie or something. It was a tie, something like that. I think it was 10-10. But uh, in any event, afterwards, Sloan was hired by Texas Tech to be their new head coach and came out with Parcells and, and basically the entire staff of Vanderbilt. I was already in El Paso. So when they would recruit El Paso, they'd call me to participate in their recruiting event. So it was really it was kind of interesting a lot of fun. But I remember Sloan calling them uh, – team meeting right after two-a-days uh, at the start of our season and telling us all we were uh, and he had his southern twang. He said, now, man, I've been looking at our schedule and I can tell we're everyone's homecoming opponent when we travel. So he said, What I think we ought to do is I think we ought to elect our own queen and build our own float and go from game to game. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I love that. Uh, you spoke about your wife. So you met your your wife at uh, Vanderbilt. You, she made you chase her for three years, and I'm assuming that chase is what brought you here to El Paso.
1: Well, after we married, uh, we were in Nashville, and I had started in the insurance business when it was the only job I could find after I graduated, which in 1974 was a recession year, and it didn't matter that I'd played football or. Graduated from Vanderbilt, or I couldn't find a job. I mean, they just—they weren't. It was really tough. And the only job that opened up was uh, selling life insurance. So I started out with the John Hancock Mutual Life Insurance Company uh, at three hundred and fifty dollars every two weeks, and then at the end of six months, that dropped forty percent. And the idea was you were supposed to uh, to uh, have sold enough policies to make up the difference. Uh, which didn't quite occur for me. But uh, ultimately, we, it it turned out to be a, a tremendous rewarding profession in the insurance business. But uh, this is before Dare and I were married. And so, I, uh, I worked at the insurance business and, and uh, had my uh, vinyl briefcase because I couldn't afford leather and my, uh, my uh, polyester suits that stated you know, stay away from open flame. Uh, and that was all I had. I had two pair of shoes and wore one one day and one the next and that was it. And I went out and tried to sell and and chased her at the same time and finally, uh, actually it was her mother who told her that she should quit messing around and they ought to marry, she ought to marry me. So I owe a great debt of gratitude to my 92-year-old mother-in-law who's still here in El Paso, and uh, she's my buddy. But after Derek and I got married, I, we were actually experiencing some success in Nashville. I was doing pretty well in the business, and she was teaching at one of the um, uh, private academies there. And then her father started recruiting me right after we married in 76 to come join him at the John D. Williams Company here. My father-in-law had taken over the John D. Williams Company, which was a very small uh, general life and benefits, but general insurance, uh, property casualty agency with five employees. It was started in 1929 by John D. Williams, who was my wife's grandfather and my father-in-law's father-in-law. And so he asked me to come out. John D. Williams had passed away back in the 60s, and my father-in-law ran the business. It was a little larger in, from a sales and revenue standpoint than you would equate to an operation that only had five employees, and he asked me to come out. And so I came out, I told Adair, I think it's a great opportunity for us. Her first comment was she didn't want to leave Nashville. Uh, and I said, well, I just, I think it's an opportunity for us. Let's do it. So we moved out and I started with the John D. Williams Company on March 1st of 1977. I spent uh, approximately four years under my father-in-law I, uh, on a, as a straight commission salesman. And that was the way I liked it because I could determine my own destiny by whatever I produced. And uh, I uh, adored working for him. I really, I was very, I was closer to my father-in-law than I was my own father. And uh, I doubt very many people can say that. But uh, unfortunately, uh, six days after my 29th birthday, he uh, passed away prematurely of a heart can, of a heart attack. And so uh, I was left to decide. There were only six employees at the time, and I was left with the uh, decision to decide what we do next. We had no perpetuation plan. We talked about it. Frankly, he had uh, given me an outline of what he wanted to do in the way of uh, divesting himself of the business, but uh, it had never been implemented. So basically what happened is I went to my mother-in-law and to the banks and said, Will you give me credit so I can buy the business?" And that's how we did We started out. So, I hadn't even seen the financials when I bought it. I mean, I know we were doing well, but I I was strictly a salesman and not involved in the the operation or the financial side. So we bought the business and then we started uh, growing and uh, it got to the point where I had an opportunity to make an acquisition and the acquisition was much like Jonah swallowing the whale. I bought an operation that where we went from six employees to 120, um, all leveraged, which was a real challenge and uh, I had to personally guarantee all the debt and uh, so it was always kind of uh, my responsibility but that's, so we ended up buying an agent, a large property casualty agency here with benefits and, and became the largest in our region. On um, January closed on January first, nineteen eighty four, and uh, and then we went from there and
0: did dealt with the ups and downs and grew the business. So out of all of that, what was it that drove like kind of drove you into doing what you're doing now in politics? Because it doesn't seem like you were going that route. No, it was, politics is the last thing I
1: ever thought of. I was always in the background of supporting candidates and providing. Um, financial support, and that was really about it. Um, In um, 2004, 2005, I can't remember when it was, I was uh, chairman of the El Paso Chamber of Commerce. And while doing that, I would go down to Austin and advocate on behalf of uh, El Paso, uh, the business community primarily in in Austin and with our legislature. And what I saw was that I, I felt like we were being very poorly represented as a community. And it was very frustrating. So I came back and in 2006, I uh, decided I was gonna go run for office. Um, Most people thought I was nuts, but uh, we did. And of course we lost. Um, I have lost more than I've won. Um, But uh, that was the reason I did it to begin with. It had nothing to do with any political desires? I still don't have any political desires. El Paso gives me, gave me roots. Having moved every three years growing up, I hated it. I mean, I lived in Ardmore, Oklahoma till I was three, Jack, uh, Midland, Texas till I was nine, Jackson, Mississippi till I was 12, Dallas till I was 15, and then moved to Huntsville, Alabama, midterm of my sophomore year in high school. And I just I just I hated moving. I never had any roots. And El Paso gave me roots, that's why I'm not going anywhere, regardless. Uh, and uh, and I've raised my children here, I have one son here with uh, with his wife and they have three grandchildren and they're fifth generation El Pasoans and, and frankly, as I stated on numerous occasions, they're the reason I'm mayor, they're the reason I run for mayor or am running again for re-election. Um, it, this is a great community with uh, tremendous people and culture and great opportunities that I think have been untapped and, and uh, I'm just trying to see what I can do to help move us to the next level, both uh, regionally, statewide, and nationally.
0: Idealistically, what would that next level be?
1: Well, people don't recognize that we're the largest U.S. city on the Mexican border that we're a region that goes back over 350 years to 1659, 361 years to be exact, with the founding of the mission in Juarez. And uh, uh, people don't realize until 1848, the bulk of our population as a region was on the south side of the Rio Grande. And today, you know, we talk about being the nexus of three states and two countries. We're actually uh, the largest binational, bicultural, bilingual region in the Western hemisphere. We're a, we're a population of 2.7 million people with an average age of 31. That is that is a tremendous asset, and and uh, that's what we're touting from an economic development and recruitment standpoint. I've stated on on many occasions that I think we have more in value in our human capital as a region than there is in oil in the Permian Basin. Um, I'm convinced of that. And, but we're, I found out going through our immigration crisis, going through August 3rd, and now the pandemic, that we're just, we're still an unknown region. And especially when we were doing the the immigration crisis and the national media was calling this ground zero, and we'd have all these media uh, anchors come out to interview and see them, see the, migration coming across and they would interview me and and I would describe our our region before they come out. But I always say, but you won't get it. You won't really fully understand it. You won't grasp it until you get here and see it firsthand. And I can't tell you how many who came out of New York and elsewhere said, when I asked them that question, they said, you're absolutely correct. We had no idea. And that makes it tough for us to get in front of Major corporations and others. If we're if we're not even a known uh, jewel, I think we're jewel, a known commodity. Period. And uh, that was one of the reasons we went after after I became mayor to go after the Amazon headquarters. Now I knew our chances were very much of a long shot and slim and none, slim or none. But it was a way to get us profiled. And remember, we actually originally when they put out the uh, the uh, opportunity, the proposal. They talked about 50,000 jobs and um, expansion of 50,000 plus the capital investment. Well, we already did 50,000 for the relocation with Fort Bliss. And we did Fort Bliss from 2005 to 2012. And and now I think it's over $6 billion or almost $7 billion in construction uh, value plus the movement of the troops in here. We actually did that. So, excuse me, I don't know of any other area in North America that had already done it. So, we knew we could do it. We used that as a, as a leverage point. But at the same time, I wanted to showcase all that we have in the way of assets and attributes, which we did. And I think that's what's contributed to the fact that we got the regional distribution center, even though it's right outside and horizon, and uh, it's still the employees will come from El Paso. And then that's the point of our BorderPlex Alliance is a regional uh, uh, play for our entire area. So it's a start there. And and I think we'll have some more uh, opportunities with jobs and capital investment, which is what's going to need to to occur for us to come out of this pandemic. You know, we're not going to reopen our economy. We're going to have to rebuild it.
0: Whenever you talk about having to rebuild the economy and you talk about the the jewel that this El Paso region and everything is and and one of the reasons why I keep finding myself moving back here like being you know the kid that graduated from Socorro High School and left and has been all over and now coming back here to El Paso is because I see that potential that the city of El Paso has. What's it like whenever you have to run into those roadblocks though from people that are like you know what this is what it's always been and that mindset what that's what's that like for you?
1: Well, it's frustrating anytime there's an obstacle and that we can't, you know, move forward. It's frustrating. Yeah, there's, a, there's, there's. I don't think we have a caste system here, but there are certain uh, cliques. I would say that that want things done their way, and if they didn't get permission, they, they have concerns over why why should uh, it be allowed to continue. My position is, it's an apolitical position. It's a uh, nonpartisan. the mayor is a nonpartisan individual. I am the only at-large elected official on city council. Everyone else is a single member district and it's my job to represent all of El Paso and I've done my best over the little over three years that I've been mayor to do that. Uh, so uh, you know, I, I just, uh, my background is as a CEO for 35 years. And I've been doing economic development and recruitment since, since the '90s, when the Chamber of Commerce was the private sector economic recruiter for our community. Before it morphed into uh, the Regional Economic Development Corporation, about 2005, I think, and then Redco has has morphed into the Borderplex Alliance, and that's uh, and there I think uh, they're doing a great job on behalf of our community. So, but that's. Uh, that's what it's going to take. It's going to take capital investment. Education also is a big issue. You know, I did the uh, EPISD Board of Managers for two years from 2013 to 2015 after the previous Superintendent Garcia had uh, gone to jail where he should still be. Uh, and the Commissioner of Education removed all the trustees, which I think should have occurred as well. And so, there were five of us established by the Commissioner of Education to, to do a turnaround at EPISD. And I've said from day one from there that the economic viability of a community is going to be solely predicated on the education of our workforce. And it starts at the secondary level. Mm-hmm. And so, we, we've, got, we've got that, we've got UTEP, we've got Texas Tech, we've got, we got lots of opportunities here for, for uh, growing our human capital from an educational standpoint.
0: We talk about the importance of education and the role that that plays with, you know, obviously, the more education you get, the more the higher likelihood of success and, you know, bringing more money and things like that here to the city of El Paso. And you've mentioned a lot the BorderPlex alliance that we have with Juarez, with Las Cruces, three states, two countries, one basic community as what we have. On, May, on August 3rd, 2019, that community was rocked by some heinous acts of somebody that came in here to basically target people who didn't look like him. How proud of the city were you watching the way that this entire region kind of galvanized itself around that and didn't let that break us?
1: I, I can't tell you. I, I mean, it's it's still raw to me to deal with August 3rd. Uh, it was an attack on who we are and I took it very personally. Uh, Adair and I attended, I think, virtually every funeral, except for the ones in Juarez that we couldn't make. Uh, I hope I never, ever have to do that again. But uh, this was where an evil white supremacist came from over 700 miles away to attack us as to who we are. And uh, as I've said, you know, when you look at our history, in the fact that as a region, as a region, we go back over 350 years. We've been here 100 years before the United States was ever even founded. We have witnessed wars and revolutions and we've survived every one of them. I think our DNA is embedded with the resilience that it takes. And, uh, and yes, I've been proud and gratified and honored to be of a community that has come together and said, basically we're gonna overcome hate with love. And we did that, we are doing that. And I think that's why we don't have some of the other issues that other major cities are going through right now. We're a different community that people don't understand and, and our culture is such that uh, we're a more open culture, Uh, We're a friendly culture, people that come from the Northeast and elsewhere can't get over what what our nature is like. And I will tell you the week post August 3rd, when every major news outlet from around the world was stationed here in El Paso and broadcasting, every time I did an interview, whether before the interview or after the interview, invariably the comment was made to me, I cannot get over the hospitality of El Paso. And so I just think it's just, it's what makes us special. It's what unique. We have a great work ethic. Uh, employers are overwhelmed because they come out with some preconceived notions of, about our culture and work ethic, which is, which is totally uh, false. So we correct that. The productivity level here is phenomenal. We are a special area, a special region with special people.
0: Whenever you talk about the culture of El Paso, I know I know this has been you know a little down. This, this first portion of the interview has been a little down. We've we've spoken about you know some personal things, especially about what has to be the darkest day in the history of El Paso. So I kind of want to line it up just a little bit here. You talk about the culture here in El Paso. What's your favorite place to go be at? Oh,
1: there are several, but you know I'll have to do L and J. Uh, as a as, as one of the many I mean the I mean we got so many good restaurants here it's hard to pick and choose and I try to go around to all of them <laughs> uh, I got hammered after we started opening the uh, on social media about we in uh, may 1st when the governor started letting restaurants open some and I dare and I went out and said we got to do this i mean it's a, you know this this I, I don't want to jump around but this pandemic, has affected our community from a physical standpoint because we are a highly vulnerable minority population. We're 85% Hispanic. And we have the primary underlying problems and conditions that lend themselves to, uh, to severity when it comes to this COVID-19. Um, we have a high incidence of diabetes here. And we have a high incidence among our population of hypertension. And those are the two major causes of death from an underlying condition standpoint. And so we're highly vulnerable. that's why it's imperative people wear your face coverings, wear your masks, maintain the distancing, and wash your hands. Um, But it is, so we had the physical health issues the limitations economically, which is starting, I believe we're hitting the point where we can't can't keep our economy down anymore. It's become crippling. Uh, too many places are closing their doors. Too many people are unemployed. The CARES Act funding and the PPP program is 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 out unless they re uh, the government redoes an additional one. But in between our physical health and our financial health or our economy is our mental health and our mental health is being strained by those who have been impacted with the illness and their family strain by those who have been impacted by the financial strain the inability to to work or pay their rent or or have those basic necessities that they need and then you've got just the general strain of uh, of the uh, of the uh, uh, not the lockdown but the fact that we're quarantining and staying at home, and initially we were quarantining where you had to stay home. And that creates all kinds of strains within families and others, and then trying to get the kids back in school, which they're not, they're only part-time, and the, and the distance learning, the strain on parents, especially if they work, how do they do that? I mean, this is this has just upended us nationwide, worldwide, and uh, we're, we need to get through it. We need a vaccine, well, nothing will change I say we can't put it behind us until we have the vaccine, and hopefully that's coming out, but we can learn to live with it and stop the spread if we will maintain the, the face coverings, the masks, the washing of hands, and the social
0: distancing. Whenever you see like reports that come out nationally saying that El Paso is one of the worst whenever it comes to you know keeping the distance and, and wearing their face masks, What do you think about stuff like that though? Because it's kind of an anomaly whenever you see the numbers dip in here and the numbers didn't get near as high in El Paso as it did for some other parts of Texas. Whenever you see something like that come out, does that, is that frustrating to you or is that something where you just say, you know what, we all just need to get on the same page?
1: Well, I don't think it's necessarily factual. Mm -hmm. The New York Times called me four or five weeks ago for an interview because they said we were ranked as one of the city's most wearing masks. And, uh, so I just think that there's, you know, there's, there's all kinds of anecdotal misinformation out there. Mm-hmm. I'm seeing people wear them. I think we're, I think we're doing a pretty good job as I drive around. As I go downtown as I go and see people. I, I see a lot of mask wearing and, uh, you know, employers are supposed to make sure they do that. Uh, if there's distancing within an office, you, you can, you don't need to wear your mask, but, uh, you know, I'm, I think we're doing a better job than we get credit for. And our, our numbers thus far are showing it. My concern is our number of deaths and Juarez. I still want to maintain the limitations on on essential versus non essential travel between but back and forth with Juarez. Um, I think we still have too much non essential travel going back and forth. And if you're a citizen or or a uh, green card carrying a legal resident, uh, you can go back and forth. But but according to the data I'm hearing from CBP, there's still a great majority of people going back and forth for non-essential items like haircuts and meals and things like that. And we just got to be careful of that. Community spread is what's driving what what our uh, our infections. Now right now we're down. We're plateauing. I'm just. I'm waiting to see what the Labor Day numbers will look like and, and what kind of impact we'll have. It's imperative though that people um, get tested if, if they want to be tested. You don't have to be symptomatic to be tested if you, if, and I encourage people to do that.
0: One of the big topics, especially recently here in El Paso, has been the uh, release of cluster information. Um, you know, There's a lot of people out there that want to say, okay, well, we want to know where all the clusters are. And there's a group of people out there saying, you know what, we don't want people to necessarily know the clusters because we don't want fear and things of that nature. Where do you stand on that issue when it comes to the cluster information?
1: The only cluster information that the state of Texas allows us to release when you name the the, the business or the, the location has to do with nursing homes who receive state funding, Medicaid funding the state has said those will be disclosed. Otherwise, state statutes, the law, says we can only disclose um, statistical information, period. We cannot disclose the name of the business. We have three attorney general opinions that so reinforce that, even though the media has asked what we can and can't do, and each of those Incidents, there were three requests made. The Attorney General's office stated that you cannot release that information under our confidentially confidential um, confidentiality statutes that we have. So it's become a bit of a political football with some members of of council who keep saying, Well, we want to vote to release. Um, if in fact council had voted to release, I would have vetoed it. I'm not gonna allow us to be stupid and uh, violate state law, uh, which is the it's the bottom line. It's statistical purposes. So if you go on the dashboard, you can see the various businesses. But the other part of it is on the condemnation and the and in most cases, our spread is not as a result of the business. It's a result of the community. It's called community spread. So if you have two employees and the cluster is defined as two or more, so let's say you have two employees as, as you're at X Y Z Sporting Goods, whatever it is, and you have two employees who test positive, but they got the they got the contact was in their families or in another social gathering, had nothing to do with the with their place of business, and yet we would have members of council who would say well, or or some in the media would say well, I want you to disclose that you had two employees who are testing positive as a cluster. That to me, that doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. That's not applicable. It's not germane, it's not, pro- it's, not uh, it's not not what you should do. So even though uh, it's portrayed in certain media representations that city councils voted not to do it, the bottom line is we cannot release the, the names. However, we have also said if a business wants to self-disclose, fine but it's not the obligation of the city to disclose that business's name, period. So for statistical purposes, you can see the various types of businesses and the numbers of positives that have occurred from from those types of businesses.
0: We spoke earlier about not needing to uh, restart the economy, but the need to rebuild the economy. With the election coming up, that's going to be, I'm sure, a point, a sticking point for you and some of the other candidates out there. What is your plan that you have for uh, rebuilding our economy here in El Paso?
1: Well, the irony is when the city's economic development department has been relocated from a city facility to the Mills building to be in close proximity to the BorderPlex Alliance, which is our private sector uh, recruiter for the entire region, Southern New Mexico, Juarez and El Paso. And our economic development department works very closely with them. And uh, we we actually have, irrespective of this pandemic, more active prospects and visits that have occurred than at any other time in our history. We are, uh, we announced Amazon, we're about to announce Probably at the end of September uh, another investment with many employees, probably a little larger than the Amazon, which will be something we've been working on for, that I've been working on for almost two years and meeting with the CEOs, et cetera. We're going to announce some other things coming forth. So the real opportunity for us to rebuild our economy, taking advantage of what we have in Juarez with the maquilas and the manufacturing. Is, the, uh, is what they call, I think, if the buzzword is correct, resourcing or whatever, uh, coming back from China. Mm-hmm. And uh, you've got warehouse distribution, you've got manufacturing, you've got lots of things that we're going after to do that. And, and, you know, I've only been mayor for three years, but since I've been mayor, we have added, since June of 17 to date, we've added 4,000. One hundred and fifty-five jobs, and eight hundred eight million in capital investment, and that's um, almost twice as many jobs as my predecessor brought in during four years, and it's about three hundred million more in capital investment, and only in in less than three years. So that's the key for our future: is 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 the economic development, and and. Uh, talk about our brain drain and people moving away and all that. That's how we keep them here. And then we have, you know, with Texas Tech and we got the new dental school opening up. Uh, that'll be an economic driver for us. The med school is. People don't realize that the, the, that the Texas Tech Medical School here requires you to be bilingual when you graduate. You actually are bilingual as you go through it. And it is the only med school in the United States that requires a bilingual graduate, graduate, for, for for an MD, and that is something that's unique. And unfortunately, I hear people don't know that the dental school will also require you to be bilingual. And if you show up and, and don't know Spanish, they'll put you in immersion until you do. And uh, you know we've got the nursing school there. UTEP, UTEP has a new president, Dr. Wilson. I I think, uh, uh, I mean, a Rhodes Scholar. Uh, former congresswoman, former Secretary of the Air Force, former president of a, another university in South Dakota, I mean, we, we're, we we have some great opportunities here.
0: We speak about the opportunities here being in El Paso and one of the one of the uh, articles I looked up whenever it was speaking about you during my research was that you didn't want to be a politician but you felt that El Paso was being ill-served and we addressed that a little bit earlier in this uh, conversation as well. Do you fear that if you are not elected, that El Paso will go back to being ill-served or do you feel like it's still being ill-served and you're just kind of chipping away at it right now?
1: Well, let me try to answer that without uh, without denigrating as best I can. I think we're on the path. I've had some opportunities uh, with the US Conference of Mayors and national opportunities. Uh, There's a podcast coming out that I did with Kevin Faulkner, the mayor of uh, San Diego, and um, uh, I can't remember, the former Homeland Security, whatever his name, uh, with, with with President Bush. And yet I'm the bulk, it's a podcast on immigration that I did with the Brookings Institution. And that's coming out, I think, this week or next week that I did some months ago. Uh, I've had the NPR has uh, uh, interviewed me, but PBS we did a we did a real special on uh, both immigration and on August 3rd that was aired nationally. Uh, I've been on Face the Nation. I've done numerous panels. We have never had that from Mayor um, Judge Diego and I are totally in sync. I understand that we've never had a close working relationship between our county judge and the mayor. Judge Samaniego and I do. We talk frequently, and all of our emergency orders under the pandemic are identical. So I think we're doing the things, and I have, after having served in the legislature, I still have relationships in Austin that open the door. I testify on tax bills with Ways and Means and Senate Finance. I know a lot of those people. I've, I've known the governor for 20 plus years. Um, um, I can deal in Washington. I've been working on immigration reform with some people, but that kind of got put on a back burner with uh, this pandemic. Uh, so I think uh, if you look upon the mayor's role as to be the outward personification of our community, I think we're making great progress, and I'm doing the best I can. And unfortunately, some of these crises has allowed me to uh, to be out there. When it started with immigration, uh, you know, I've done I can't. There's not a I've done worldwide media. I've done I've done Germany. I've done German media. I've done uh, Sweden. I've done uh, Switzerland. I've done. Uh, Reuters, Great Britain I've done I've interviewed with The Economist uh, there's I don't know of any publication frankly of any significance that I haven't had a chance to to visit with. I've done all the major networks, all the cable networks uh, and uh, tried to portray El Paso and educate people at the same time as to who we are. The feedback I've received from frankly all over the United States has been very positive from people who say I had no idea. So, I want to. I want to continue the trajectory. Um, I want to. I want to lead us out of this pandemic. Um, I'm not running to sell cars or do anything else. I'm strictly running to, uh, to, uh, to lead El Paso and doing the best I can given the challenges we've we've had.
0: Whenever this election comes and goes and we go with the hypothetical of if you were to lose, or are you just completely stepping out or are you going to say, you know what, I have this cause and I am going to fight and continue to fight and be in the public eye to get this cause in the city of El Paso?
1: Well, my business sold in, in 2012. I lost my reelection and, uh, to, the, to the legislature and uh, when the business sold, um, I don't have any need to continue, I'm, I'm basically retired, okay? So I serve on the Cancer Prevention and Research Institute of Texas, CEPR, which gives out 300 million a year in research grants and prevention grants. Um, I've been doing that since 2015. Um, my biggest goal for that is to get more research grants for UTEP and Texas Tech. Uh, we've got some and, and things like that. Uh, I run Operation Noel, which is the charity that provides twenty thousand coats for kids at Christmas time, and has done that in one form or another since the thirties. And I took it over personally in two thousand six. I actually been doing it since nineteen ninety, uh, about ninety three or ninety four. We had the, we had a fund here called the Border Fund. Um, I still do that. Uh, I'm not. Closing my door. I love El Paso, and uh, but I would just—I'd hope I'd have the opportunity to continue and uh, complete the uh, the complete the task that I've started.
0: Mr. Margo, I want to thank you so much for your time today, sir. Um, the best of luck in the upcoming election. But just know that I am rooting that if you do not make it, that you make the UTEP football team. Like we need <laughs> to get this done. <laughs>